Father, there are burdens many. Lord, there is suffering. There is grief. And there is loss. But one day, you will remove, you will wipe every tear away. One day we will sit at your feet. One day we will walk in the way with you. Lord, we look forward to those times and to those days. And they serve as a a bearing up of our souls as we wait this day. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please have a seat. So I'm going to begin today's message with something that I rarely use, and and, and that's humor. It doesn't mean that I'm humorless, it's just that humor is very complicated in the human social dynamic, and so you have to... uh, uh, you have to be careful with it. But uh, some of you remember, uh, some of you will remember, in fact, and perhaps others have never uh, heard, but in the mid-90s, a comedian by the name of uh, Bill Ingvall, he was uh, part of the uh, Blue Collar Comedy Tour. Uh, perhaps you've heard of his, uh, uh, at least in comedy, big brother, perhaps uh, Jeff Foxworthy, and his catchphrase is, you might be a redneck. That's not what I'm going to use. I'm going to use Bill Ingvall's. And his uh, most uh, well-known catchphrase is, here's your sign. Now, many people who are familiar with that phrase don't know where it actually uh, came from. But Bill had been doing his comedy act for uh, years Uh, Without the catchphrase, what he would do is cleverly point out the regularly stupid things that he observed in the world around him. And as a part of his show, he would sell these little signs for one dollar a piece. He would write out on these little signs that you could wear around your neck that said, stupid. And uh, his jokes were, they revolved around uh, the obvious. So, for example, he says, One day, I locked my keys in the car, and as I was standing there with a hanger halfway through the top of the window, a guy walks up and says, Lock your keys in the car. Without missing a beat, I said, Nope, just washed it and was hanging it out to dry. Now, if you've never had to break into your car with a coat hanger, you don't know that joke is not that funny. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, that's the kind of humor he's talking about. Another one was a truck driver was driving down the highway, and a sign uh, ahead uh, said, Low Bridge Ahead, and before he could uh, stop and turn around, it was on him, and he got stuck under the bridge. And so there were cars that were backed up for miles, and finally a police car pulls up beside him and says, uh, puts his hands on his hip and said, Got stuck, huh? And the truck driver said, no, I was delivering this bridge and I ran out of gas. <laughs> now, now, stupid is not a word that was allowed in our house. But with this comedian, pretty soon people were running around with these little signs and they were giving them to their friends saying, here's your sign. Now, for those who are familiar with this work, uh, the rest is history As it relates to what we're talking about today, you might be interested in knowing that Jesus, on a very serious note, called a group of people stupid. 
You've probably never heard that, uh, but we'll, we'll get there. Just hang on. So, a sign. What is a sign anyway? So, a sign is any uh, motion or gesture, an image, sound, a pattern, uh, or event that conveys uh, meaning. In fact, there's a whole science called uh, semiotics. Some of you, who knows, maybe you're a semiotician or something. But there's another word that you may be more familiar with. It's semaphore. It comes from the same word. And that's a method of visual signaling through the use of handheld flags. It was used extensively, of course, through uh, time and the, the Civil War, World War I, World War II. The Navy uses it. Uh, to this day, to communicate certain things by the the flags that they're flying on their ships. Where you would see them most often are at railroad crossings. So you have these uh, signs that uh, there are actually ones that uh, move and so forth. Those are semaphores. And now the, the important thing to note is that the sign is not the thing in itself. Anyone knows that any one of you at a railroad crossing can just run through whatever they put down. In fact, they're made to break away. Okay, That's not the reason you stop. The reason that you stop is that semaphore, that sign is saying a locomotive is coming, and if you cross, that thing is going to hit you, and you're gambling with your life. So there is a little difference here in, in some of these words, the sign, right? It's not the barrier that stops you. It's the meaning that stops you. 1 Corinthians 14.8 says this, And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? In other words, you have to have a clear indication of what the sound is, or what the signal is, or what the sign is uh, that allows you to recognize the meaning in the pattern. And our faith is filled with beautiful signs and symbols that remind us of our heritage as followers of Jesus Christ. And so a symbol is an object. There's a slight difference. It's still a sign, but it's an object that stands for something. The differentiation is that a sign hopefully is like clear, stop, a stop sign. But a symbol is something that you have to have some uh, meaning in it, such as the flag, or we have a cross on the pulpit. We have a cross on the window. There are crosses on the pews. There are, we even have crosses in the lights in here and in the foyer. Now, that's, that's important for us. The cross is filled with uh, meaning. And those aren't the only uh, symbols that we have. I mean, think of the dove, the dove with an olive branch in it. That is a symbol. A symbol of what? Well, if you look back in Genesis 6, you find out the account of uh, Noah's ark, and he's trying to see if there's dry land out there, if there's a place to stop safely and so forth. And anywhere, and so he'd send the dove out. The dove finally comes back with an olive leaf as a sign of God's forgiveness. This judgment is over. Peace has come. Another one that we have, which is also built in. One day I'm going to either recreate or show you the little video I created. The richness of the symbols that are on the pews, on the pew, on the lights, and in the 
stained glass window behind us. But the fish is one of the earliest. That's also represented in these uh, symbols. And, and what is it? The, the Greek word for a fish is ichthus, which is an acronym. It's Jesus uh, Christos, or Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so, as a way of identifying one another, without getting into trouble by people who didn't know, they would use this symbol. So the people who didn't know didn't have this additional meaning, so the symbol wasn't clear to them at all. It was just a fish. But to the believer, it was rich. Now, there's words that we're looking at here. Semion is the Greek word for sign. And it's very important in the book of John uh, because that's the word that John uses to describe the miracles of Jesus in the gospel. So, so since January, we've been walking uh, with Jesus. We've been looking at the sights and the sounds, uh, the smells around us that the Bible brings to us so that we've been very present with each one of these stories. But today, we're going to come a little modern time. We're going to get in a helicopter. We're going to go up a few thousand feet. We're not going to take a 20,000 foot view, but we're going to go up just a bit so that we can see the entire landscape of John. And our passage is John 4, uh, 54. Originally, I was going to uh, go through uh, the the place the whole the whole text where the Lord was uh, the result of the sign in the believing uh, family, but this uh, took the sermon, and so we're looking at this one verse where John writes, "This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee." So we're going to look at signs, biblically speaking, today. Now, in John, he uses this word, semion, uh, okay, semion, which is the word for sign. As opposed to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they use the word dunamis, and, which is where we get our word dynamite, but it's uh, variously translated, depending on uh, what translation you use, as miracle or mighty acts, or something along those lines, like acts of power. Mark 9.39, Jesus said to his disciples, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work, a dunamis in my name, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. And so you have this word in the New American Standard. It's not translated as mighty act. It's translated as miracle. There's a related Hebrew term, uh, which I like. It's oath. It sounds like, uh, like an oath in English. And that's a miracle that specifically in the Old Testament that was used as a sign. Not all miracles are signs, although they certainly could be. But in understanding that, a lot of miracles are just simply the demonstration of the power of God. And to that degree, it is a sign of sorts. But there are other miracles that are very specifically designed to point at something particular. And so, Semion is used here in John, and we see 
that he records a number of miracles, but there are six specific signs. And so while the synoptics are using dunamis to demonstrate the power of Jesus, John's use of semion is to point to the person of Jesus. Not only what he could do, but he was in fact the sign and the meaning of the sign. So for example, when Jesus multiplied the loaves in John 6, he explained that the sign, the loaves, he in fact was the bread of life. He raised Lazarus from the dead as a sign that he was the resurrection and the life. So there are six signs that are clearly delineated in the book of John. I'm not going to spend much time on them. We've already looked at two. We will look at the other four in detail uh, later as we go along. But just to let you know what they are. The first sign was Jesus uh, turning water into wine. Uh, The second was the one we've just looked at, the healing of the royal official's son. But then there's the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda, the feeding of the multitude, the healing of the blind at birth, and then calling Lazarus out of his tomb. But I think I should have, if I didn't, maybe you have heard that in the Bible there are, in fact, seven signs. And that's true. The sixth one is described, but it's not called, uh, the seventh one is described, but it's not called a sign in John. We have to go elsewhere for that. It's located, in fact, in Matthew 16, 1 through 4. In Matthew 16, 1 through 4, you have a fascinating context where you have Pharisees and Sadducees together there to test at Jesus. And uh, if you have turned there, uh, wonderful. If not, uh, you can listen to me as I read Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a semeon, a sign, semeon, a sign from heaven. And he answered them as Jesus is want to do when it is evening you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be stormy weather for the sky is red and threatening you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the time an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. This is a fascinating fascinating text where we see this seventh Semion, where you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they've joined together in order to attack him. Now, they had done this before against John, and they were successful, John the, the, the Baptist. And they either hope to bring him in under their umbrella or to uh, deny that he was the Messiah altogether. So the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were from two different places. A little cultural background here. Different domains, different beliefs, different visions. The Pharisees were experts in the, the Hebrew scriptures. 
they were the religious leaders. They were the ones who essentially were the uh, religious performance police. They were the ones who made sure that you did uh, the right thing at the right time, uh, the right way. According to the Bible, eh, I think originally, maybe, but by the time of Jesus, no, it was according to them. They controlled the synagogues, the, the local gathering places, the centers of worship, and that's where they taught and studied, especially on the, the Sabbath. Jewish culture, religiously, context was the most important thing. But however well-intentioned the beginning was, this was a crushing burden on the, the, the people, and it was oppressive. And they, they wielded that as a weaponized tool in order to crush those who defy him, them, including uh, Jesus Christ himself. They were, one might say, the, the political and theological conservatives of their day. Now, their main rivals, in fact, really their only rivals, were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priests. And they were generally also uh, revered by the people. They're the ones who did the sacrifices. In fact, in, in John, we looked at this where Jesus came in and he turned over the, the, uh, the tables uh, that were, those were the people who worked with and for the Sadducees, uh, not the Pharisees. A Pharisee would never uh, do that. A Pharisee would never uh, be doing this exchange of uh, money in, in the temple. But the Sadducees had no problem. They were the aristocrats. They were wealthy. They were powerful. They were the ones who said, Rome is uh, mighty and uh, we're in line with them. And so they might be considered the political and theological liberals of the day. Which is an amazing thing, considered that they, at best, considered each other rivals, at worst, enemies. And yet there they were together, because Jesus represented a threat to all of them, and they wanted to take him down. Now, at first blush, it appears what they were doing was okay in terms of asking questions as it is right, as teachers of God's law, as the ones who were God's priests. They had an appropriate duty to sincerely pursue, investigate, to see is Jesus who he is claiming to be. But that's not what they were doing. And Jesus immediately uh, knew this, and, and just uh, as he did with the scribes and Pharisees when they asked him for a sign at an earlier time, he said that they were uh, evil and adulterous. That was in Matthew 12. Now, if they had been sincere, you understand, they would have accepted the claims of Jesus Christ as proof that he was Messiah. Uh, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, with notable, uh, a few notable exceptions, they had already rejected uh, Jesus. They had no intention. I mean, in the Sadducees, they didn't even, they didn't, the only thing that they uh, believed was the, the Torah, the first uh, five books. They didn't even believe that there was a coming kingdom for the Jews, even though Deuteronomy 18.18 18 clearly spells out that there would be, but it doesn't matter. They wanted to trap in this either or, you see, because if Jesus cooperated, then they could co-opt him. 
If he didn't cooperate, then they could say he was not the Messiah. Either way, Jesus, he knew this, and he, his response uh, to them is just an amazing thing because they, uh, they had this kind of heads you lose, uh, tails we win kind of uh, mentality. Uh, but Jesus, he came to them with an answer that was remarkable. He said, yeah, when it's evening... Right? And it will be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, there's going to be a storm today because it looks threatening out there. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at that moment, very concrete thinkers, I think, were wondering, what in the world is this man talking about? It's off topic. It's got nothing to do with what we said. What does the weather have to do with him offering us a sign as to whether or not he's the Messiah? And not only that, but then what Jesus said next completely uh, floors them. He says, you know how to do this. In other words, you know something as unpredictable as the weather, and you can say with a degree of uh, certainty what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. Or in the morning, you can say what the weather is going to be like Today, how is it that you can do that, but you cannot see the signs of the times? You cannot see, you can't discern with all these signs and miracles around you. You know what? I'm only going to give you one. Why? Because they had denied his authority. They had denied his power. They had even called him as uh, demonic. They were so blinded by their hatred of him, they could not think straight. They couldn't do it. They were right. He was wrong. And he said, I'm going to give you one sign, a definitive, undeniable sign that would forever prove he was the Messiah. And that was the resurrection. So even though we see the resurrection in the book of John, it's a description of the sign that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew. You will know that I'm Messiah when I raise from the grave after three days. No one understood that. And not even the disciples understood it. All this stuff, you'll hear John say, yeah, you know, we didn't get this. It was only after Jesus was raised from the dead that we understood. So the primary purpose, when you look at this word, Semion, through the book of John, is found in John 30 and 31. That's why this is here, to believe or not to believe. We read this, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You know, when you see in the book of John where he says a, a, that the miracle that occurred was a semion, you almost invariably will see people coming to faith. There was a developed faith there. Now, stupid was a forbidden word in our home. Yet, on one occasion, that's what Jesus called the Pharisees and the scribes. 
in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, by the way, is one of the most scathing. You've got to go to the Old Testament to find a passage that's more scathing than Matthew 23. And in verse 17, Jesus says, You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Now, the word that's used there for fool can legitimately be translated as fool, and that's true. But most often, as you'll see, I think, more clearly in a moment, the word carries the meaning of stupid. In fact, that word that he used has come to English in the form of a transliteration. Now, a transliteration is not a translation. A transliteration is when they take the letters from the Greek word, they put them with the letters of an English word straight through, and you come up with the word moron. Now, what did Jesus mean when he called them morons? This is very important to understand because that word doesn't carry exactly the same significance to them as it did to us. To them, it was not a reference to a person who was dumb. It was not a reference to a person who had any intellectual problems at all. That's not what it was. It was a reference to, that was reserved for a person who refused to know, who refused to understand, who refused to realize. In other words, when the truth was directly in front of them, they denied it, which is why it's also a legitimate translation to say fool. But you need to understand that he called them stupid. They are refusing to acknowledge what is right in front of them. I mean, and that's really what this story of the royal official was all about. It's not about having enough faith for a miracle. The application is not that if we had enough faith, those in our lives and around us with that faith would be healed. That's not what the proper application is, although one could draw that from it in a different sense. I mean, God can and does miracles today, but miracles are by definition the miracles, which means they don't happen that often. Why then this story here in the gospel is written for one reason and one reason only. The primary reason is that you, the second sign is that you may believe that's the whole point of the signs in john and the sign of jonah is that you may believe that you might believe and have life in his name i mean the whole of john's gospel of the signs here in this one in matthew were written so that you would know that jesus christ is lord of heaven and earth one other thing uh, before we leave is a very important understanding. Since we're still up in that helicopter, I want to go back to John 1.17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came 
through Jesus Christ. So we should expect that in the book of John, we would learn why grace is better than law. Why Jesus is higher than Moses. This story was written so that you could understand that. So you have the signs of John, but you also in John, right at the very beginning when he's establishing his purpose, he's telling you that Jesus Christ brought grace and truth. So there were signs, but if you look in the Old Testament, especially the Septuagint, the Hebrew translated into the Greek, you find that this uh, word, uh, semion, was used of Moses. God said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and he said, I will not let them go. So God said, I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So these signs that were performed by Moses, and I'm not going to go through them all, but I am going to look at two. The first sign, this is when I'm overwhelmed by the continuity of the Word of God, and I hope it overwhelms you too. The first sign was when Moses turned the water into blood as a sign of judgment. And of death. Yet the first sign of Jesus was when he turned the water into wine. So that you see that the people were not consumed with death, but rather with joy and life. What was the last of Moses' sign? The death of the firstborn. What was the last sign that Jesus gave? It was his death of the firstborn, the preeminent one, very God of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, dead on the cross, buried and rose from the grave. Here's the message. The God whose laws we have broken and whose judgment we deserve. And we don't get the gospel without this notion. He sent his son to this earth so that he might live, that he might die on that cross, and that he might rise again so that we would not die. The wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Remember, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The law came through Moses. Something so much better, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. And there is grace and there is truth while we yet live in Jesus Christ for each one of us. All we need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we are 
honored to be in your presence today. We're honored to be under the sound of your word. For if I or anyone else simply does none other than read the scripture, we have been in the presence of your holy word. Lord, we thank you for who you are, what you've done in our behalf. Continue to ever give us uh, understanding that we might be able to walk in the ways that you've prepared for us from the very beginning of time, even the beginning of eternity. We thank you, we praise you, we pray that what we do might be a a sweet-smelling sacrifice to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.